I grew up watching reruns of Dragnet. How about you? A couple of you may have listened to the original radio broadcasts or watched the original TV episodes in the 50s. I can still hear the opening music and narration, can't you? Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. The intro uh, to the radio version is probably or is more applicable to us tonight. The story you are about to hear is true. But the names haven't been changed. Actually, one isn't even mentioned. We all know it's true, uh, but sometimes it's helpful to remember that these aren't simply fictionary stories that Luke made up. These are actual events involving real people with real emotions and, and real thoughts. Um, they lived real lives, and it's important that we take the time to dig into the reality, their reality, in order to gain a better understanding and a, and a greater appreciation for what actually took place and why Luke decided to include this story in his gospel. But before we jump in, I want to warn you that digging into their reality tonight may bring a little discomfort before it provides comfort. Because while the story ultimately points to the bounteous mercy of Jesus and puts it on display, it also puts us in a position of determining whether we identify with the scandalous gratitude we see or the contemptuous pride, because both are put on display as well. Those are, of course, the points of our outline tonight. We will see scandalous gratitude, contemptuous pride, and bounteous mercy, as is our custom. Let's pray before we begin. Father, by your Spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your word. Awaken our attention, open our sorrows, convict us and challenge us, and then please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel. I am weak and needy and unfit for this task, so I ask you to support and strength, uh, strengthen um, and fill me with your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Help me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. Well, the setting is a meal. It's actually one of ten meals where we find Jesus eating with others in this gospel. Uh, eight of them are expli explicitly mentioned. The other two are simply implied. Uh, this particular meal is in the home of a man named Simon, and Jesus is an invited guest. Simon's home had an open floor plan with a courtyard, so they could have gathered inside or outside. Couches were arranged in what the Romans called a triclinium. It was a U-shaped arrangement in which the couches were placed around a table that was situated in the middle for the food to be placed upon and served family style. The guests were reclining on the couches with their heads toward the middle and their feet toward the outside, and they were reclining on their left arms so they could reach the food on the table with their right 
But those invited weren't the only ones present. Banquets such as these were open to the public, and they weren't opened for others to eat, but they were open for others to stand along the walls and in the alcoves so they could listen to the conversations taking place around the table. And in verse 37, we're introduced to one of those in attendance. Luke doesn't share her name, but he does describe her. She was a woman of the city who was a sinner. And while we don't know for sure, the consensus is this meant she was a prostitute, and everybody, of course, knew it. It wasn't a secret. Her reputation, which was all a Middle Eastern woman would have had at that time, was not merely tarnished, it was ruined. And we don't know her background. We don't know what led to the choices she made um, to enter prostitution or into this profession. profession. She could have been a woman like Fontaine and Les Mis, a woman taken advantage of and lied to and abused and broken and discarded by a man or men that set everything in motion and left her believing she had no positive alternatives before her. In the words of the song, I Dreamed a Dream, this woman probably had dreamed a dream in the times gone by when hope was high and life was worth living. She dreamed that love would never die. Back then she was young and unafraid, but the tigers came at night. They tore her hope apart and turned her dreams to shame. Her storms could not be weathered. She had a dream her life would be so different from the hell she was living, but life killed her dream that she had dreamed. And of course, the deeper she plunged into sin, the more hopeless she became. The condemnation she felt from those around her paled in comparison to her own shame. She was an outcast who was ostracized due to her uncleanness, and therefore she was all alone. And every day, with every choice she made, the opinion of others became a reality in her own mind. Every day, with every choice, the weight of her sin grew to the point that she believed it was too great, and she was too far gone to be forgiven. But at some point, she had encountered Jesus. We don't know if she had heard John proclaim his message of judgment and repentance and then Jesus' message of mercy and forgiveness. We don't know if she had been following him and watching him heal and, and listening to him teach. We don't know where or how, but we do know at some point she had heard the good news of the kingdom of God. She had heard that her sins could be forgiven and that Jesus was the one who could forgive her. She had repented of her sin and the weight of the guilt of her sin and her shame had been lifted. She who was spiritually bankrupt and hungry, she who thirsted for righteousness had come to him in faith and had been satisfied. She believed that though she now wept, she would one day laugh. She had looked to him in faith and her broken heart had been bound up. And she didn't care that anyone else in the room or what, they, what anyone else in the room thought about her. She knew they already hated her and reviled her and excluded her and spurned her name as evil due to her lifestyle of sin. So she didn't care 
if they were going to hate her and revile her and spurn her name on account of him. She had heard Jesus was there. She wanted to see him. She may have wanted to be assured that she believed uh, what she believed about him was true and that she, in fact, had been forgiven. But I, I believe, based on what she does, that she, she just came to honor him. And to thank him and to rejoice over what he had done for her. She had come to express her love for him and her gratitude to him for his forgiveness of her. So in verse 38, when she entered and walked over to him, she was overwhelmed with emotion. Tears didn't just well up in her eyes and slowly stream down her cheeks. Her tears that were both Tears of contrition and joy fell like rain showers and began to hit his feet. Looking around, she didn't see a towel, so she took down her hair, which was a cultural faux pas, and began to wipe his feet dry. She then began to kiss them repeatedly and then anointed them with the very expensive oil or ointment she had brought with her. She had come prepared to do exactly what she was doing. It was an extravagant display, but it was directly proportionate to the level of her gratitude, which to most everyone in the room was a scandalous display, particularly to Simon, who was, by the way, a Pharisee. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this, this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And the only way to describe his response is contemptuously prideful. How could a woman like her be in the same room with a man like him? How could a woman of such poor standing and awful reputation be in the presence of someone of such high standing and lofty reputation like himself? Simon couldn't stand the fact that she was there. He was repulsed, not only by her presence, but by her display. And he was appalled that Jesus didn't stop her. You can hear the pride and arrogance in his thoughts. He won't even allow himself to name her sin. She's simply that sort of woman who is a sinner. In other words, he identified her by her sin, and, by the way, at the same time identified himself as righteous. Her sin was all he could see. He couldn't see who she was because of who she had always been. His opinion of her was locked in place. In his mind, she was unforgivable and unredeemable. And this revealed not only his opinion of her, it also revealed his opinion of himself and most importantly, Jesus. Any notion that he might have had regarding the possibility that Jesus was actually a prophet and representative of God was shattered in pieces. His letting her in his house was one thing. Jesus letting her touch him the way she was was altogether something else. Interestingly, the word Luke uses that is translated touch is the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7.1 that's translated sexual relations. So there's, there's a possibility that in Simon's mind what she was doing had sexual overtones due simply to her lifestyle of sin and Jesus was just proving himself to be a typical man. 
But Simon couldn't have been more wrong. Which brings us to the last point in verse 40. It says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus, of course, knows the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. And in responding to what Simon was thinking, he communicated that he not only knew who this woman was, and he not only knew the sin that she had been in bondage to and and the brokenness that not only caused it but had resulted from it, he also knew Simon and the sin that he was in bondage to as well. He knew Simon better than Simon knew himself. So when Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you, what he's saying is that what I'm about to say or or to communicate to you is the fact that I not only know this woman, I know you too. And the problem is you don't know you and you don't know me. And then he tells a story. He says, two guys owed a banker money. One owed two years of salary, another two months of salary, and neither of them could pay their debt. And rather than throw them in jail, the banker canceled their debt. And then Jesus asks Simon, which of the two do you think loved him more? And Simon's obviously offended at the question because it's, it has such an obvious answer. So much so that he was somewhat sarcastic when he replied, I suppose the one who had the larger debt. And of course he was right. But the sarcasm revealed that while he was able to answer correctly, he missed the point altogether. Had it clicked, he would have hesitated and thought for a moment and then replied, well, the one with the larger debt. But he didn't. So Jesus turned to the woman but continued to talk to Simon and said, do you see this woman? And he obviously didn't. Sure, he saw her physically, but nothing more. At best, he only saw who she once was, not who she was now. And at worst, he simply looked straight through her. No care, no compassion, no concern, only contempt. And Jesus knows it. So he continued. Simon, I I know you didn't have to, and you weren't obliged to, but when I got here, you didn't offer me water to wash my feet. You didn't shake my hand. You didn't anoint my head with your cheap olive oil. Again, you didn't have to, but you didn't even do the smallest and simplest of the basic courtesies when I arrived. She, on the other hand, cleansed my feet with her tears and hair. She repeatedly kissed my feet. She anointed my feet with what is probably her most prized possession. She not only acted more like a host than you did, she went above and beyond the norm. And why, why do you think that is? And of course, he answered his own question. He said, because her sins, her many sins, have been forgiven. The love and gratitude she has expressed that offended you so much was actually evidence of the fact that she has been forgiven. You see, the woman knew her sins were many, but that Christ's mercy was more. Christ's mercy is bounteous. He liberally bestows it on all who will humble themselves and repent of their sin. According to Louis Burkhoff, mercy falls under the heading of God's goodness, one of his moral attributes, and 
the most glorious of the divine perfections. He defines it as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of their deserts. But Christ didn't stop there. He has one more thing to say to Simon. He says, Simon, he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, it's not that Simon didn't need to be forgiven because he absolutely did. It's that Simon didn't think he needed to be forgiven. So while the woman's extravagant and scandalous gratitude was evidence of her grasp of her sin and evidence of her grasp of her need of forgiveness and her grasp of the fact that the forgiveness that she had received was from the Lord Jesus, Simon's contemptuous pride was evidence of his lack of a grasp of his sin and his need of forgiveness. Now, we need to remember that Christ had been looking at the woman the whole time he'd been talking to Simon. So as he addressed Simon, he'd been reassuring her. And she had heard every word as if he had been speaking directly to her. So what she had believed had now been confirmed. And to make sure there was no mistake for the woman or for Simon, Jesus said it again in verse 48. He said, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 50, he says, your faith saved you. Go in peace. In other words, don't doubt, rest assured. You can't out my mercy. You haven't out my mercy. My mercy never runs out. It never runs dry. You were forgiven because you believe in me. What you did for me today wasn't the basis of your forgiveness. It was fruit. You are at peace with God. Now, go and walk in that peace. Now, along the walls and in the alcoves of the courtyard, there probably wasn't a dry eye to be found. They all got more than they bargained for that day. It was a conversation they would never forget. But those around the table, well, their hearts were exposed. And verse 49 lets us know that in the end, there are really only two choices. There are always only two choices when it comes to Jesus. You can choose pride or you can choose humility. You can choose to question his authority or you can, quest, you can submit to it. You can believe in him as the son of God and savior and friend of sinners and live. Or you can choose not to believe in him and die. No in between. So let me conclude with a few questions. First let me focus on the contrast we see between the woman and Simon and ask that question that I asked at the beginning, which person are you? Do you understand the depth of your sin? Do you understand your need of forgiveness and the extent of the grace and mercy of God that has been extended to you in and through Christ? Do you understand that while your sins in the sight of God may not be as heinous as the sins of others, but that every sin, no matter how small, deserves His wrath and curse, both in this life and in the life to come? Do you 
also understand that as for those who truly repent, there is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven. The bottom line is, are you able to sing what riches of kindness He lavished on us? His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins they are many. His mercy is more. Or, do you believe you have it all together and are not in need of grace and mercy? Do you refuse to admit you have anything of which you need to repent? Do you refuse to admit you are unable to save yourself and that you need a Savior? Do you look with contempt at the sin of others more often than you grieve your own? Do you see people who are struggling with certain sins as unclean and to be avoided? Do you label or identify people by their sin? Do you see people based solely on who they once were rather than on who they now are or one day can and will be? Which person are you? And second, I want to focus on the woman who remained nameless by Luke so that we could all identify with her. And so let me ask, did you arrive tonight carrying the burden of guilt for your sin? And has the crushing weight of that burden left you hopeless? Then the call is come to Jesus. Did you arrive tonight carrying the burden of shame for your own sin or for a sin or sins that have been perpetrated against you? And has the crushing weight of that burden left you hopeless? Come to Jesus. Did you arrive tonight hiding and afraid to acknowledge your sin? And has the crushing weight of fear left you alone in your darkness? Come to Jesus. Did you arrive tonight feeling as though your sin is too great and too shameful and too disgusting and too embarrassing, too damaging, irreparable, and beyond forgiveness? Come to Jesus. For he said, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. Come, repent. And believe on Him. For Paul says, when you do, you will not be put to shame or disappointed. Let's pray.